perimenopause, the time in a woman's life that describes the seven to 10 years leading up to menopause and the couple years after menopause. So it's a, it can be a decade of our lives. And the hallmark of perimenopause starting is when women start producing decreasing amounts of the hormone progesterone. And that's what turns into a lot of the perimenopause symptoms that we'll talk about today. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 243. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey, hey, veggie lovers. This episode is so good, so applicable. I definitely want you to listen to this one. So we are talking about perimenopause. If you are between the ages of 35 and 55, you have female anatomy then you may be affected by perimenopause. And it's important to learn about this because nobody talks about this. And I think that the knowledge is empowering because once you have this information, you can start to do something about it and start to feel better. My guest today is Dr. Amanda Tracy. So Dr. Tracy has enjoyed being a licensed naturopathic doctor since 2005. She helped build an award-winning wellness center in Massachusetts. And in 2021, she took an opportunity to relocate to Northern California wine country and transition her practice online. She loves helping patients with various health challenges. However, her unique knowledge and passion flourishes working with women who feel their bodies are in chaos because of hormone imbalances, sleep issues, stress, or anxiety. Her current practice is focused in these areas guiding women over 35 to navigate hormone changes with ease to fully enjoy how they look and feel in both her one-on-one -on -one sessions and her Solve Your Perimenopause Puzzle group program. In this episode, we talk about her plant-based journey, how she discovered it, how it has evolved over time, what perimenopause is, why she became passionate about it, and how she has started to help people through this transition. We talk about the symptoms of perimenopause. We talk about why we never hear about this. Why do a lot of people not even know what perimenopause is? We talk about the emotional reaction that people may have when they start to experience perimenopause symptoms, what we can do to help ease the symptoms and balance our hormones during this period in our lives, what things we shouldn't do or should avoid doing in order to help support our hormones. We talk about stress. We talk about sleep. We talk about brain fog. We talk about fasting and how fasting can be integrated to help in this area. And of course, we end with the typical questions, but it is a really great episode. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. But if you need some one-on-one -on -one attention, Dr. Tracy works one-on-one -on -one with people, but also has a group program and other resources. So you can definitely seek her out. She is plant-based. She will be supportive of your plant-based lifestyle and help you if you're starting to have some of these symptoms. I also talk about some of the symptoms that I've experienced that I finally realized were from perimenopause. And I'm so glad I was able to understand that because I was able to make some changes in my lifestyle. Fasting has helped me tremendously because it's helped uncover some of the food sensitivities and really helped with, you know, just the inflammation that I was having that was definitely worsened before my period, all of these things. So I talk about that a little bit in this episode. 
for all of you longtime listeners. Thank you for being here. I so appreciate you for new listeners. Welcome. I hope that you really enjoy this podcast and that you keep coming back week after week. And now this is my conversation with Dr. Amanda Tracy. Dr. Amanda Tracy, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited about this. Like we were talking before I started recording the podcast, this topic is so relevant in my life right now. I'm 43 years old, took me by surprise some of the changes I was experiencing. So I cannot wait for you to share some of your wisdom and knowledge with my listeners. But before we get more into perimenopause and and all of the deets on that, I'd love to know about your plant-based journey. How did you discover plant-based nutrition and how has it evolved for you over time? Sure. Well, my plant-based journey has been almost my entire life. I really started my plant-based journey as um, earlier in my teens. I really did not like meat. I never ate much meat in my childhood, never had much dairy. It just did not appeal to me. So I ate everything else. I preferred to be a lighter eater, more fruits and vegetables. Uh, but I was a very active child, an active teenager in dance and sports. And so I really needed to get into nutrition to figure out for myself how I needed to feed myself for energy without having what was pretty much available in the 80s and early 90s in America, which was meat and potatoes and a little bit of a side veggie. So I really, it was about my own health and my own you know, stamina, but my own preferences, really. It wasn't about animal welfare at that point or preventing chronic disease at that point as a teenager. But as I started to learn more and get deeper into it, it evolved in my late 20s and early 30s to be fully plant-based. And I really noticed that that helped a lot of my hormonal symptoms that I was experiencing in my teens and 20s. Wow, that's amazing. Has it evolved into other parts of your life, like for your family? Have you influenced friends, family members, other people around you? Yes, in a friendly way, not in the preachy vegan stereotypical way. Uh, My partner, Joe, eats mostly plant-based when we're at home. He prefers it now that he's become accustomed to it. It's inspired my mother and sister to be more plant-based. And they're in their mid-40s and 60s and feeling really well and uh, preferring to be dairy-free, especially. That seems to not go well with my family. (laughs) So once I get them through the hurdle to be dairy-free, then they start really noticing the positive changes and want to learn more and incorporate more vegetables into their diet. Yeah. And man, dairy affects so many people and so many people don't even realize how much it's affecting them until they stop consuming it. And then they're like, wow, I feel really good without this. But you're right. There's a big mental hurdle with dairy because it is absolutely delicious. And it's in so many things. It's just very prevalent in our society. And it's a lot of our celebration things, you know, cake and ice cream and lattes and all of these things. So for a lot of people, it can be really intimidating to consider giving up dairy. Yes. And even for myself, with not really being attracted to dairy and not including it in my regular diet in my teens and 20s, that would be something that I would be, I guess, a little bit more liberal about when I went out to eat or at a celebration or a family function. I not wanting to be that person to inquire too much about what they're eating. And as long as it was vegetarian, I thought, okay, I can get by. And even though that was maybe just a couple of times a month, it was still enough to affect my hormones and my cycles. Wow. And some people just really are that sensitive. I know that I am that sensitive to dairy too. It affects me and my digestive system. So, you know, it's it's one of those things that every person's a little bit different. You had mentioned animal welfare earlier. Do you feel like that's also changed for you or do you feel like primarily for you, it's more of a health thing? I would say it's still primarily health, although I am an animal lover. And about 10 to 15 years ago, when more documentaries were coming about out about the meat industry and animal welfare and farming practices, I, of course, wanted to be educated and, and consumed all of those uh, documentaries and films. But I also felt so great that I wasn't partaking in any of the animal products at, at the time that I learned about the farming practices and 
and just it, I felt like that kind of incorporated more of the animal welfare aspect for me. And it actually brought me to a next level of not wearing any animal products and um, really looking for avoiding animal products in other areas of my life besides what I was ingesting. Yeah. So definitely primarily because it helps you feel good, supports your well-being and your health, but really having those bonus points as, yes, this is compassionate. It aligns with my values as well. Kind of seeing it in that win-win-win sort of situation, which is kind of how I went about it too in, in my life. Right. And then we have the third wind of helping heal the planet. Oh, yeah. Which is a big deal, <laughs> which is <laughs> yes, a really big we deal. We're here. in a state of emergency. <laughs> so yeah, very good. Okay. So let's get into it. What is perimenopause. So tell us what the definition of it is and how did you become passionate about helping people through this transition? Sure. Well, perimenopause is the time in a woman's life that describes the seven to 10 years leading up to menopause and the couple years after menopause. So it's a, it can be a decade of our lives. And the hallmark of perimenopause starting is when women start producing decreasing amounts of the hormone progesterone. And that's what turns into a lot of the perimenopause symptoms that we'll talk about today. It actually happens in our mid-30s and starts to steadily decline through our 40s because our ovaries are starting to not respond to our brain as quickly and each month, and so we're producing less progesterone. The consequence of that is our brain realizes this is happening and starts to overreact. So it starts to overstimulate our ovaries and miscommunicate with our ovaries. And then we start producing varying amounts of estrogen at varying times. And depending on where our progesterone levels are at that time, it can cause lots of symptoms. I became passionate about perimenopause more for because hormone health was always my specialty from my teens through our 20s, managing my own hormones and really helping women think about their hormones and their cycles outside of fertility. For a lot of women, that's when they start actually paying attention to if they're ovulating or if they're having a, a cycle is for fertility purposes. And I totally understand that. However, medicine has solely focused on fertility for women's health. In medical schools and in practice and in clinical research, the phrase women's health meant obstetrics and fertility. And so um, hopefully we're going to be changing that. I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but I think of perimenopause as the Jan Brady of women's health, because uh, when you're looking at women's health and medical training, it's all focused on fertility and pregnancy. And that's, it's cute and it's fun and exciting. That's like the Cindy Brady. And then thankfully, the boomer generation made menopause mainstream and something that we could talk about and made it to be more of a liberating experience and a youthful experience than it had been in previous generations. And I think that's the attention getting Marsha Brady. But Jan, she's just somewhere in the middle. She's not cute. She's not liberated. She's a, when things get a little weird, all these things, random things start happening. You know, people don't know how to react to her. Sometimes she's tired. Sometimes she's anxious. Sometimes she doesn't sleep well. Sometimes she can't get out of bed. And that's perimenopause. That's partly why I wanted to focus on it, because it is being a holistic naturopathic doctor. It encompasses the whole body. It encompasses gut health and brain health and stress management and energy levels, not just your periods. And there's a lot of things we can do as a naturopathic practitioner to help balance all of the erratic symptoms and all of these body parts. I love that analogy you gave. That's so cool. It's, it's like really puts it in your mind. But I agree with you that we have this period of fertility where it's like abundance and excitement and anticipation. And then menopause is talked about so much that I'm just like, okay, it's going to be fine. I'll have plenty of information. You know, I, I'm not afraid of menopause. But then boom, you get hit with these unusual weird symptoms nobody talks about. Nobody says anything about. I had to like literally, I'm a physician, you know, like I should have known this stuff, but I, I don't feel I really, it was probably like two sentences in my education, you know, like nobody talked about it and how impactful it can be in your life and how confusing it is 
So I think that that's a really good analogy that it's kind of like this thing in the middle that nobody talks about, but can really affect you really greatly. So before I ask you about why we never hear about this, let's talk about the symptoms, which I know that there's a lot and they can just seem like completely random. So maybe let's start with what are the more common symptoms? And maybe you could throw out some of these random ones that could be also associated with perimenopause. Sure. I mean, of course, we could spend the next hour listing off the 50 symptoms related to perimenopause, and they are different from woman to woman, and they can happen at any time between 35 and 55, which makes it a little bit more confusing. But the first symptoms of perimenopause really do have to do with that shift in your progesterone levels and the progesterone levels decreasing. And these are things that I try to help my patients understand when they're happening because they're subtle and they build up over time. So they can be a shift in your PMS symptoms. So you can start having the the same PMS symptoms that you've had for decades, but they could be a little bit more severe or more pronounced, or they could last a little longer. You may be accustomed to having two or three days of some PMS symptoms and knowing your period's coming, but now it's starting to happen seven to 10 days before you're expecting your period, or your periods are starting to come closer together by a few days. If you're normally every 30 days, it might start being every 26 to 27 days. Those are the beginning signs that there are some perimenopause hormonal changes. And then because of the way that progesterone usually helps us with water balance as a diuretic, you may start to be having more bloating, either intestinally or noticing more water retention or puffiness in your hands or feet, more breast tenderness at any point in your cycle. And my favorite lighter sleeping at night, waking up more frequently at night for no apparent reason. Um, Those are the beginning symptoms of perimenopause. And I guess I would say some of the more classic or common symptoms for perimenopause. But because of the hormone shifts of this time of your life, it starts to compound and affect your sleep, stress hormones, and energy levels. So you might notice feeling more susceptible to feeling more easily stressed, even without a specific change in your work or lifestyle, being more easily triggered, being more easily irritable and reactive. And sometimes this starts to create a cycle of anxiety and depression and irritability. So I can tell my husband that that's, it's just perimenopause, not to worry. <laughs> I want to um, use that excuse, actually. A little bit of what he's doing, too. But... <laughs> Okay, that that sounds definitely and I'll say some of the symptoms that I started having, which were very frustrating, definitely the fatigue. I'm already a light sleeper. I've never had trouble falling asleep, but definitely between one and 3am that bing and wide awake, so frustrating, hard to fall back asleep. And then of course, you fall asleep right before your alarm goes off, which is the worst brain fog, which is was the most panic inducing for me given the fact that I'm a public speaker and I do a lot of podcasting and writing and I want to be able to think on my feet, that has been the most anxiety provoking for me is the brain fog. Joint pains, definitely some more anxiety and food intolerances. That one I've seen can be related to perimenopause, specifically histamine intolerance for me. So those have been some of the ones that I've seen. um, And, you know, I've read the list of all the possible things. And yeah, there are some things on there which are like super random. But then when you start to understand how it's related to your hormones changing, you're like, okay, now I understand why that could be happening with some women. So why is it that we don't hear about perimenopause? Why does nobody talk about it? Do you have any theories about it? A few, I mean, partly is because it's a, it's this diffuse array of 50 plus symptoms. It's not just one. I mean, thankfully, the past 30 years, we've started talking about menopause more. So women have an idea of what to expect in menopause. Although most women do just think of hot flashes and night sweats as the hallmark. And that's what they're waiting for, which is not necessarily the case. And I think Partly the reason that we're not looking at perimenopause or don't hear about it is because it's it builds up over time. It can start at a different age. It doesn't have an average age of 51 like menopause. So their medical community doesn't know exactly what to tell women. And then the medical community doesn't exactly focus on it themselves. There's only about 20% of residents surveyed, gynecology residents, I should say. So 
presidents that have focused on women's health that said 20% of them said they got formal training about perimenopause and menopause. So that's one out of five schools are looking at it. So that's part of the issue is, is your doctor may not be well versed in perimenopause to bring it up. They may look towards an antidepressant or a sleep aid to look at focus some of your symptoms, but not really discuss perimenopause. I also think the past 30 years since the Women's Health Initiative was stopped, which was looking at postmenopausal women and hormone replacement therapy, when that study was stopped because of the connection between synthetic hormones and increased breast cancer and uh, uterine cancer risks, it kind of put a halt for a while on research in that area because they weren't looking for a solution, weren't sure where to go after hormone replacement didn't work out. So I think now we're seeing the consequence of that where a new generation hasn't been exposed to any conversation around hormone health besides birth control pill, fertility treatment, IUD, have some hot flashes. That's the course. (laughs) So I think our generation uh, is the intersection between Gen X and the millennials are looking for a different option. And so I think that's where the perimenopause uh, conversation is starting up, thankfully, more recently. And now for a very important message. Hey, mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. For sure. And, and that's why I had you on the podcast, because I think it's so important for people to hear about this and hear the symptoms. One of the thoughts I had, and I did have an author on recently that talked about the differences different genders may have when they're seeking healthcare and personality differences is that there's some people when they have symptoms, they automatically just start blaming themselves. And I know that that's the case for me too, that, oh, I must, uh, I'm doing something wrong. I'm, I'm not eating the right thing. I'm not doing the right thing. It must be something that I'm actively doing that's causing this rather than understanding that it's internally driven, of course, knowing that there are things we can do to help it. But I think whenever we believe that we're causing it, we're probably less likely to look for solutions because we think we're the ones to blame, you know? So I wonder, because some of these symptoms are so random, like you said, and they come on so subtly and so slowly over time, that there's a lot of people that are just like, oh, I'm just doing this or I'm doing this and it's all my fault and there's nothing really I can do to help resolve these issues. I know that for me, I just value well-being so much 
maybe I should rephrase it and saying that I really do not appreciate discomfort. <laughs> maybe that's the best way to say it, <laughs> that I'm always seeking solutions. So it was like, why is this happening to me? And I think the other thing too, that's really weird about perimenopause is I just, I feel like you get to that point in your life where life is flowing. You understand your cycles. You're like, I got this. I finally, you know, I've been doing this for three, three and a half decades. I've got this. And then boom, the rug gets pulled out from under you and you're like, I just had it. What? Why is it changing? (laughs) So it's really frustrating to have it during that time. Uh, Do you feel that that happens to your patients too? Like they're like, am I too young for this? Why is this happening? So, because I feel like now in our society, we are told, hey, you can do what you want for as long as you want. You're young and vibrant and you could go as hard as you want. And then all of a sudden things start changing and it's almost like a letdown. Do you feel like there's some grief and mourning around it too? Not necessarily grief and mourning. And I don't see that as much. What I do see more is potentially shock because women are having children a little later in life. And I see more in my practice, women going straight pro postpartum right into perimenopause. And so they're, like you had said, potentially chalking a lot of their symptoms up to postpartum and like, oh, I'm not sleeping as well. I have more on my plate and and these things are going on. And then all of a sudden, two years pass by and they realize, oh, the periods never came back or I'm, you know, feeling more fatigued than I should. And so they're sliding right into perimenopause and then a little bit more shocked because especially if they didn't need, if they didn't have fertility treatments or fertility support, they're thinking everything was perfect and fine. And I got pregnant right away. And, and so they kind of like jumped right into it. So I see that a little bit more often than that kind of like the, um, more anger or grief over, over it too. And I think that I look at it positively too, in our forties, 40 years ago, people used to have over-the-hill parties when they turned 40. And I had a a, a, a disco Studio 54 party when I turned 40. And I thought, this is this is like going to be the best decade of my life. I don't feel over the hill. And I think society has changed and our expectations have changed for the better. We're expecting more. We're expecting to feel better. We're expecting more energy in our 40s. However, we do need to look at our lifestyles and realize women have so much on their plates with young children and full careers. And I think that's where some women do put a lot of their symptoms into that bucket of like, oh, it's because I'm doing these, I'm expect doing too much or I'm not sleeping enough and those things. And they may not connect to their hormones quite as early as we would we would want. But at the same time, I'm also seeing in my practice women coming in and wanting to address perimenopause because they want to feel better and they know they can. And also because we've disassociated the age piece of it. We're not shameful about aging in our 40s. And we see that we can be vibrant in our 40s and 50s. And it doesn't seem to be like associated with a decline in that sense. So I think that's yeah. a positive aspect. Oh, absolutely. No, I agree with you. I don't feel old at all. Like I can't even imagine having an over the hill. Like, no, I'm not even close to the top of that hill. Like, you know, like I totally am like you. My 40th birthday party was so fun, karaoke and all of that stuff. So it's uh, for me, it wasn't like I'm mourning aging. It's more like, hey, I feel like I'm just getting started. I want my body to keep up with me. It's more of that for me, maybe emotions of feeling betrayed by my body. Like, hey, this wasn't supposed to happen this soon. I thought menopause was until I I was 55. I wasn't expecting to have any symptoms till then. You know what I'm saying? So shock maybe is a good one too. Surprise. Like you're just taken by surprise. Okay. So let's talk about what we can do about it because that's what you're an expert about. And hopefully we can help some people that are starting to experience these symptoms. What can we help what can we do to help ease the symptoms or to balance our hormones during this period in our lives? There's a lot of things that we can do. And I'm passionate about this because it does go back to treating the root causes of the imbalances and the fundamentals of good uh, naturopathic medicine and holistic medicine. And I break the fundamentals down into five steps in my solve your perimenopause puzzle method. So we've mostly been talking about the first step, which is the S, shift your perspective. 
knowing what to expect, when to expect it, know what's, you know, what's out an outlier and what could be related. So having that awareness really helps women identify how much support they may want and also what changes they could make to improve their symptoms. The O in solve is own your stress. And so, and I mean, own your stress by really looking at what could be causing stress in your life, what changes you can make to decrease some of those stresses, like if it's delegating or 10 minutes of white space a day or a walk outside at lunch, like small things to just actually realize the impact that stress is having on you on a daily basis and doing small things to discharge it. The L is love your liver because our liver is responsible for managing, balancing, detoxing all of our hormones. And if you remember, I had said that the brain is causing an overreaction and erratic estrogen levels everywhere, and that's causing a lot of the symptoms and confusion for women because some weeks you have more estrogen, some weeks you have less. And so the symptoms are going back and forth and you think you figured out the solution. And then two weeks later, you feel completely different and need to do the reverse. So it's very frustrating. So the more that you support your liver with liver supportive foods, herbs, reducing toxins to the liver, that helps it focus on your hormones in a more efficient manner so that you can keep your estrogen levels a little bit more steady when the when the brain is causing all this chaos. The V, which we've touched a little bit on, is value your sleep. And as, even though we're having lower progesterone levels and which causes us to, to be lighter sleepers and wake up a little more easily, right? tell women to do initially is value your sleep. You, we actually do need seven to nine hours. We actually need almost as much sleep in our 40s as we did as teenagers. Now, I know we don't have the lifestyle we had as teenagers and we can't sleep until noon on the weekends and catch up anymore. So because of that, we need to make sure that we are in bed early enough to get some quality sleep. If we can get a good three or four hours before our brain wakes us up at 1.30 or, you know, instead of an hour before 1.30, it will help us in the long run. So make sure we're valuing our sleep. And E is eating for hormone balance. So there's lots of strategies you could do to help balance those erratic estrogen levels, to help your body actually make some more progesterone if you have the signals for it and to detoxify your hormones. That's what I help my patients do is figuring out some nutritional strategies to balance their hormones. I love that. That's so comprehensive. Okay, let me say them again, make sure I got them right. Okay, so number one, shift your perspective, which I think that's good for me too, <laughs> not to get over emotional about it, to understand <laughs> it, know that there's things I can do. Okay, own your stress, big one for all of us in our 40s, for sure, because we do. We have kids still. We have our careers. We have so many goals and dreams. So there's a lot of things that we need to do. I think, you you know, that word delegate, so important for a lot of us. It's hard for me to delegate. So learning how to delegate so that you can have that time for yourself to do that self-care, that's so important. Love your liver. I love that. Um, value your sleep which maybe we can touch upon that just a little bit more, some other strategies, because I think that one is so important for so many Americans. And eat for hormone balance. Okay, very good. So let's, can we touch a little bit more on sleep before we get to some of the nutritional aspects? I know you're talking about sleep hygiene, which I talk about all the time. I'm a pediatrician, so lots of talks about sleep hygiene, not just for the little ones, but also for the teenagers, keeping that routine as you know, similar as possible, sleep time, wake time, so that you can support that circadian rhythm, really paying attention to getting to bed on time and, and not trying to push it too much. But is there anything that people can do that struggle with either falling asleep or this frequent waking where they can't fall back asleep? Are there any special strategies you have for that? Sure. Uh I definitely advise all of my uh, patients to avoid caffeine after noon. So you can have one or two cups in the morning. That's totally fine. And avoiding alcohol after 7 p.m. Now, I happen to live in Nap near Napa in wine country right now. So this is a hard sell because wine is a lifestyle. It's, a, it's the economy here. But avoiding alcohol after 7 p.m. really helps to avoid that disruption of 
from your sleep. And then if if you are waking up between one and three, um, it can be that's when our melatonin wears off and then our cortisol might be keep waking us up. So that's a key to look at stress during the day to reduce uh, that nighttime waking between one and three a.m. So looking at maybe stress management techniques before bed, doing meditation before bed, listening to music or listening to a, a sleep story to help calm some of the stress signals in the brain before falling asleep. If you're waking up more between three and five in the morning, that's more of a sign that the liver is struggling. So then even though it's disrupting sleep, it's more about the liver managing hormones and focusing on detoxification and supporting your liver. Hey, are you kind of curious about microgreens and including microgreens in your diet, but you're not sure where to start and you're not sure how to do it? I love my Hamama microgreen grower. It's so easy, it's so convenient. So this is how it works. Basically, they send you the kit and it has this little seed quilt, okay? And then you soak the seed quilt in the water and in a few days, you see your tiny little baby sprouts growing and a few days after that, you can start eating them and it's so fun. And you can tell them that you're eating them and they're really happy that you're eating them and your body's really happy that you're eating them. But here's the best part, because I've told y'all before, I'm lazy. So I don't wanna have to use any mental energy that I don't need to, and they send you seed quilts every month. So you don't run out, you can change what seed quilts you want to try. So here's some examples of some of the seed quilts they have. Hearty broccoli, refreshing cabbage, energizing kale, spicy daikon radish, super salad mix. You can even get wheatgrass, you can get culinary cilantro, or even hot wasabi mustard. So there's lots to choose from. They have different flavors. They're so cute and they're health promoting. So you can get a good dose of antioxidants and it's really beautiful. I also use them for garnish when I'm making soups and salads and different bowls. You can impress your guests. But like I said, it's going to be low energy cost on your part and it's actually not that expensive either the other thing that i use from hamama is a green onion growing kit which is really cool because it can decrease your food waste so you buy the green onions and then the little part that has the root the white part at the bottom you stick it in these little holes and then you just put the water in there and it grows and then you can keep eating the same green onions you just go with your little scissors and you chop it off and you put it into your food so if you want to give it a try you've been curious about microgreens and different ways that you can grow your own food, check out Hamama. You can find it in my show notes for a link to get 15% off, or you can go to dryami.com forward slash shop so that you can find the link and get 15% off your first order. Happy growing. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you wanna join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. And what about for people that struggle to fall asleep? They're not doing excess caffeine. Do you ever recommend supplements like melatonin or any of these other sleep aids to help them fall asleep? Yes. So that's the wonderful thing about naturopathic medicine. We have many tools. Uh, I do recommend melatonin for some patients. Usually if patients are having an issue with sleep, they've tried melatonin already before they talk to me with like this kind of like some first line therapies that patients are pretty aware of over the counter. So usually I'll use something in a sleep formula. So sometimes it might be calming botanical medicines like valerian or passion flower mixed, you know, maybe with some melatonin or some lemon balm. Or I may use something that's more amino acid based if they do also have anxiety, some depression or low mood, 
combined with sleep difficulties, then I might use something that has more tryptophan and inositol and glycine in it. So there are different options. So there's options for those of you out there struggling. So, you know, if you've already tried all the things, you got your sleep hygiene down, you're not consuming the excess caffeine or late alcohol, then definitely seek support in that area. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit. Can you expound a little bit more about what it means to uh, love your liver? What, what are the things that we can do to support our liver? Some of the things I've already mentioned, reducing alcohol, reducing caffeine, look at your lifestyle and where there might be some chemical exposures in your lifestyle. So make, switching to natural cleaning products, natural cosmetics, natural uh, body care, and looking at scented candles, making sure you're using essential oil scented candles and not synthetic fragrances. For foods that help to support the liver, you'd want to make sure you're having dark leafy greens every day and other foods that help to promote bile production because bile is one of the ways that we manage our hormones. So that is red or orange beets, uh, artichokes, and fresh citrus like lemon. So one of the best things I recommend for my patients to do is start the morning with a warm glass of lemon water. So squeezing a quarter of a lemon into a nice hot glass of water. That's a good way to get the liver going for the day. I've heard that over and over again, how that is so healthy for the liver. I have not yet gotten into that. I think I'll try it and see how it goes. I just really don't like sour things, but I'm going to try it and see if I can tolerate it. But I know a lot of people do that. And I've heard over and over. I even heard a story about this one surgeon that he would always have his patients do it before he would have to do abdominal surgery. And the ones he could tell the ones that were doing it because when he looked inside, the liver was nice and shiny and healthy. And then the other patients had more of those fatty, you know, deposits on their liver. So anecdotal, of course, who knows, but you know, it sounds really. Yes. And I'm lucky enough to have a lemon tree in my backyard, so I have no excuse. Oh, so I do so start my fresh. day. My I'm sure water. they taste so good when they're fresh like that too. Yes. That's awesome. All right. I'm going to try it and see how it goes. Let's talk about eating for hormone balance. And I love how you mentioned all the veggies, the leafy greens and the beets and artichokes and all of that. So let's talk a little bit more about eating for hormone balance. And hopefully you're going to talk about more plants. Yes. <laughs> so I am plant-based. I don't require my patients to be plant-based, but I do want them to be plant forward. So every time they're eating to be at least 80% plants. So that's my goal for my patients. And when I'm talking about foods for hormone balance, there are some general strategies that women in perimenopause can do even if they don't know exactly where their hormone levels are at. The first strategy is very easy to do on a plant-based diet, which is getting at least 40 grams of fiber a day. Fiber helps to increase the proteins in our blood that bind up extra estrogen and extra testosterone and also helps to make sure we can eliminate the extra, extra hormones in our gut. So most on a plant-based diet, pretty easy to do to get that if you're eating a good quantity of food to get 40 grams of fiber. It sounds like a lot to the average American who is eating 12 to 15 grams, but for women, especially 40 to 50 is great for hormone management. Specific foods that help with modifying estrogen levels. Again, like I said, they're high and they're low and they're flip-flopping throughout the month. So foods that help to modify that are ground flax seeds and ground and hemp hearts. So I suggest my patients to add those to their morning smoothie or their oatmeal or plant-based yogurt. And um, I already mentioned the liver foods, which those are helping with hormone management as well. If you can tolerate soy, I do recommend one to two servings of organic tofu or tempeh or edamame per week. Those are my preferred forms of soy. Those are amounts that have been proven to balance estrogen levels uh, adequately, so you don't need to eat actually a lot of it to do that. To help with progesterone, there's a few foods that can do that can help with that. So in general, in perimenopause, we're trying to amplify our progesterone signals. So anything that's bright orange would help to do that. So carrots, butternut squash, sweet potatoes, papaya, mango, pumpkin. So there's a lot of foods that can help with that. 
Those are also delicious too. So good excuse to eat more of those foods. Yes. All right. I mean, that sounds amazing. Now you've already touched on some of these, but maybe there's a few others that you haven't mentioned. What are the things we shouldn't be doing or we should be avoiding in order to support our hormone balance and and healthy hormones? I'm going to have to repeat what I said already, because these are without a doubt, the two things that you have to do, avoid caffeine afternoon, and that's in the form of coffee, tea, and chocolate, and avoiding alcohol after seven. And I definitely want to repeat that. We've seen a lot of uh, a rise in alcohol use, especially with women and wine over the past few years during the pandemic. So I really want to encourage patients to start looking at their habits and seeing if they can modify their alcohol intake, especially at night. Okay. Those are really great tips. Uh, I also want to mention pre-workout. I don't do pre-workout, but we have a funny story from the office about my office manager that didn't know that there was caffeine in pre-workout and she doesn't tolerate caffeine. I don't tolerate caffeine. She had the worst anxiety all day long until she remembered that she had taken pre-workout and it had caffeine in it. So all of you fitness people, the pre-workout counts too, right? I mean, it's got quite a bit of caffeine in there. <laughs> yes. And that, thank you for mentioning that's something that I I don't practice myself. So I had forgotten about that class of caffeine. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that I'm into right now is the whole weightlifting and powerlifting. So being in that community, there's a, you know, there's a certain culture to it, right? So everybody's doing like certain things like creatine and pre-workout, all this stuff. So it's just something that comes to mind as like having a lot of caffeine. So you got to think about that. Okay, so stress is big. Stress is pervasive. Let's talk about the effects of stress on our hormones. What is the driving factor that's causing the dysfunction in the hormone? What's happening there? Well, the main reason that stress causes a shift in our hormones is because the adrenal glands, which are respond to stress and produce cortisol, which everyone is familiar with the fight or flight response, Those glands are also our backup or reservoir source of progesterone, estrogen, and testosterone. So in perimenopause, especially when your ovaries are producing lower amounts of hormones, your body's really relying on the adrenals to step up and fill in the gaps, so to speak, to keep things running. But if you're under acute or chronic stress or had been for years, which a lot of women in their 40s find themselves in that position, the adrenals don't have the stamina or the reserves to actually contribute to making the progesterone because they've been focusing on cortisol for so long. And so is this what's known as adrenal fatigue then? We use the term adrenal dysfunction more because it's more of a balance, imbalance situation than an actual disease or death of the glands. So we it, call it an adrenal dysfunction. Okay. So that's good to know. And you mentioned earlier things like meditation, music, you know, those kinds of relaxation techniques. Is there anything else that we can do that you would recommend as far as mitigating stress or learning how to manage stress? Because I'm assuming that most people aren't going to be com- completely able to change their situation. So they're probably going to be still in situations that could potentially be stressful, but how can we learn to manage that better? Yes. And that's why I really do like to focus on those small activities, like using a five minute journal or a 10 minute walk or listening to a 10 minute story before going to bed. Because most women, exactly the situations that are causing the chronic stress are things that they can't change, a a career situation or being a caregiver for children and elderly relatives. And they were pulled in a lot of directions for real reasons. And so to mitigate the stress, it is really important on those small activities you can do to prevent the buildup versus just taking away the situation. So I counsel my patients on finding where those opportunities are for those small nuggets. And when in doubt, just get outside. It's spending time in nature, smelling the trees actually has been proven to lower cortisol, being able to see the horizon, being able to see the ocean. So getting outside as much as possible. So many benefits to nature. It comes up again and again on this podcast. So thanks for that reminder. So yeah, that's really great. What you're recommending are things that are achievable and realistic for most people in this busy world, this 
you know, busy modern life, instead of trying to like completely overhaul and change your life, what are the little things that you can sustainably and consistently start to implement to help manage that stress? That's really great advice. All right, let's talk about brain fog because like I said, that's the one that makes me panic the most. I hate the feeling. It is such a weird thing to have. Like it's even hard to explain, but now I know exactly when I have it because I've been able to figure out how not to have it. But when you first get it, you're like really confused about it. Like, what is this a change or why am I feeling like this? Why is it hard to remember things, especially right before and during my period? Vocabulary recall so hard sometimes to the point where I'm just like, am I getting dementia? You know, it's like that. So, can you talk about what we can do? What can we do for people out there that are starting to experience this brain fog? Uh, what can we do to prevent it, to reverse it, maintain our cognitive function, and regain or maintain our sharp memory as we age? Sure. And this is a, a symptom or a collection of symptoms, brain fog, poor memory that patients ask me about quite often. And um, the primary factor that's impacting our cognitive function when we're in our 40s and 50s is unfortunately the effects of stress. Because when we do have that cortisol exposure to the brain, it actually reduce, it reduces our ability to enter deep sleep. So we're not getting the rest that we need to recuperate. It actually prevents us from creating memories if we have high cortisol in the brain. When we think of cortisol as it fight or flight and it helps us focus, yes, for the very short term. And you're focused. You're ignoring everything else. So when the cortisol is in the brain at night, we don't transfer our experiences from the day or what we learned from the day into our brain. So it actually disrupts memory in that sense. So usually we do focus on stress management and healing the adrenal dysfunction with nutrition and herbs to help reduce the occurrences of brain fog and short-term memory issues. The other major bucket is inflammation. And a lot of the hormone imbalances that happen, well, we'll say when estrogen wins over progesterone, that causes more inflammation to be triggered in the body. And at a normal monthly cycle, we notice this the couple days before our period arrives, which we may have more brain fog and trouble coming with memory recall. Also poor coordination. This is one of those funky symptoms that happens to me. I been practicing yoga since the 90s, and I can't stand on one leg the couple days before my period comes. I just can't do it. It's just, I don't have those connections with that higher estrogen, low progesterone. And so in perimenopause, we're having more time, more days out of the month in that situation. So it's increasing that inflammation and affecting our nervous system. So what we can do is focusing on those hormone estrogen balancing foods like flax seeds and hemp hearts and our liver supportive foods. And also the increasing progesterone foods, all those beta carotene foods, and also look at other areas that may be triggering inflammation. So one of the best reasons to be on a plant-based diet is it's a very low inflammatory diet in general. So if you are on a plant-based diet and starting to have these pockets of more inflammation, it would be worth looking into your thyroid function, because that's something that changes in perimenopause for women because of the lower progesterone levels. And also looking into uh, food intolerances, because there are a lot of gut function changes that happen in our 40s, and we may start to be forming inflammatory reactions to different foods. So it could be a grain or a nut or a seed that you're eating often on a plant-based diet. All of the above. Sunflower, which is an everything now because they're using it it as like an emulsifier. And that one's a big one for me. And it took me a while to figure that out. But through fasting, I was able to figure it out because now with fasting, I'm really sensitive when I eat something, I know exactly what what it is, you know? So yeah. Okay. So that's all, that's all positive. So it seems like there's things that we can do. And that definitely explains why before my period, I'm running into everything and I have bruises all over my body because I'm running into the corner of the oh. counters and all of this stuff. It's like my brain doesn't perceive my my body in space very well. So that makes so much sense. Um, okay, that's really great. So speaking of, I brought up fasting. Do you ever integrate fasting into your treatment regimen? If, if so, are there any rules of thumb that you have of when you might recommend a patient trying it, how they try it, those kinds of things? 
Yes. And it, uh, fasting is something I do recommend on a case by case basis. Um, and I recommend it more in the way of time restricted eating for women mm -hmm. than doing a five day ordered eating and two days of really calorie restricted. Um, I, I find that the time restrictive eating plan works better for my patients because they're able to stick to it. It's easy to understand. It's it's not confusing. They can stick to the same plan every day. I And um, once we go over what their meals will look like and what times they're eating, it, they adapt to it really quickly and they're able to stay on it long periods. So I think that's the key as well. I definitely look at doing this type of fasting with women that have a BMI over 25 they're, if they're overweight um, and if they have other cardiovascular disease risk factors like high cholesterol or high blood pressure. I feel like this is the population that it works best for. Over my practice for the past 15 years, I was mostly in Massachusetts, which is one of the healthiest states in the nation. And I, my patient population was usually not overweight and really, um, we'll say stress with a capital S because it was in the Northeast <laughs> near Boston and people had long commutes and stressful jobs. And so I found that um, the time restrictive eating was easier for them to incorporate and depending on, you know, their schedule. I had a lot of university professors that their time for eating window was, sounds kind of weird, but it was, you know, noon to 9 p.m. And that worked for when they actually needed to work. And then for other People, they got on the train to go to Boston at 5 a.m., so they were on a really early schedule, but they were able to um, stick to the plan longer and get the results that we were looking for. Do you go for a certain feeding window in general, like at first, like an eight hour, or do you just work with people kind of where they start, like start with a 12-hour window and then just kind of tweak it depending on their symptoms and, and how things are evolving? Yes. Uh, I definitely meet them where they're at. And for some people, it is it is a 12-hour window. In my patient population, I would see more um, <laughs> a disordered eating pattern of, of having a breakfast, nothing all day, getting home late from work, and then eating really late at night. So we're trying to really condense the food together first and get it into that 12 hours and then work our way down to 8 to 10 hours. Yeah. I think there's so many Americans that their eating window is longer than 12 hours and they don't even realize it because of that late night snacking. And of course, they're getting up first thing in the morning, having their latte and their croissants or whatever. And then the late night snacking in front of the television, which is going to 10, 30, 11, and you sleep and, and it affects your sleep. And that's one thing that I've really realize with fasting for me, because my eating window is early in the day and that's how I prefer it. Cause when I eat late in the day now, I don't sleep as good. I get more, I sweat at night. And especially if my body's trying to metabolize everything that I ate, I overheat at night and I just don't sleep as well. So I've been able to discover that for myself too. Okay. That's good to know. Now, do you have any cautions or red flags as far as fasting things that you tell your patients definitely don't do this, or is it just case by case? It would be case by case. And like I said, when I'm more recommending the time restricted eating, it's a very safe path to follow. Uh, so it, I feel more confident going that route. Okay, great. Thank you so much for that information. And my last question as far as perimenopause is going to be herbs and supplements. You had mentioned making sure that we're getting flax, but do you ever recommend things like omega-3 DHA EPA or any other regular supplements just in general for people that want to support their hormonal health? It's definitely on an individualized basis uh, for women of what I recommend. I definitely want to make sure that women are getting enough essential fatty acids. So depending on what their their nutrition looks like, I may be recommending flax oil in their smoothies or a vegan DHA capsule. For other women, um, definitely looking at calcium. So on a plant-based diet, women actually tend to actually get more calcium, more quality calcium than other women. So sometimes we do need to add a supplement of calcium just to uh, make sure they're getting enough. Um, I really like evening primrose oil as an option for women in perimenopause. 
it can help more because it helps to balance the inflammation caused by the hormonal imbalances and it can help support that progesterone. So when you're in doubt, if if you're starting to have symptoms, you're not sure if it's menopause related or perimenopause, evening primrose oil is a good thing to start with. And of course, there are a lot of other herbs that I use more specifically for women. I'm a big fan of chase tree berry or vitex if it's needed. I use a lot of adrenal supportive herbs like rhodiola and ashwagandha and eleutherococcus. So it all depends on a case-by-case basis, symptoms and lab results. Sounds fabulous. And I did have another physician on recently who is an herbal specialist. And there's a lot that you're repeating that he was talking about as well. And these are widely available. So yeah, this, some of these can be very supportive in our health and well-being in general. Well, this has been really great. Let me ask you a couple more personal questions and then we can see how we can connect with you. What do you wish more people knew? I really wish that more people knew that perimenopause existed and on all levels. So I'm glad you're doing this podcast and I'm glad I get the chance to talk about it. Uh, A recent survey in the UK showed that only 12% of women knew it existed. So this is women. (laughs) So uh, we have a lot of work to do. And so the more that we can get the word out there so women can help themselves feel better and not suffer until they get into menopause is my goal. Agreed. Thank you so much. And do you have a morning routine? If so, share it with us. Sure. I start my morning with a cup of hot lemon water as we talked about. And then I I am lucky enough to have an espresso machine in my house. So I do have an oat milk latte after that. And then we're doing 10 minutes of the daily calm. I love that app. And my five minute daily journal. So start with some gratitude. And then I have a plant based smoothie with greens and seeds and and fruits for my morning work sessions. And then I get my walk or yoga in before lunch. Oh, sounds amazing. What a wonderful routine. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. Dr. Tracy, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing all this with us. I know that there's going to be people that want to reach out to you. So if you could please tell us where we can connect with you and what products and services you offer right now. Sure. My website is drmanatracy.com. I can be found on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube at Amanda Tracy ND and LinkedIn. So I'm pretty much everywhere with the same handle, Amanda Tracy ND. And I offer uh, one-on-one and group sessions for women aged in their mid-30s through early 60s. I work with women on a six-month basis membership to start because it does take three months for the hormones to start to shift and, and it takes about six months for us to get everything aligned and work on everything holistically. Um, and I also run a hormone balancing boot camp twice a year in the spring and the fall if women really just want to laser focus on their hormones and get a, a, a natural hormone balancing strategy. So I have many options of ways to work with me and they all can be found on the website. And can you work with people from all over or is it just certain states? I am licensed in California. So if you are in California, I can work with you one-on-one and order lab tests. There are about 25 other states that I can work with women one-on-one and order lab tests. But that's also why I offer the group program because then I can see women that are in any state and they can do their lab tests on their own. And I can direct them on how to do that. 25 is pretty good, though. That's half of the country. So that's pretty good. The odds are good. (laughs) If somebody really wants that more personalized one-on-one, somebody to look at their labs and evaluate that, uh, it's really good to seek out Dr. Tracy and see if she can help you with that. Okay. Like I said, so grateful for everything that you've shared with us. One last question. Leave us with your number one tip for those in perimenopause that are ready to take control of their hormones. Where should they start? They should be in bed with all the lights off and all the electronics off by 10 p.m. And if they're doing doing that and not asleep by 11 p.m., they need to seek professional support and find something to help them sleep. Because sleep, deep sleep is the linchpin that in perimenopause that makes the hormone imbalances worse, makes the stress response worse. And as we all know, we're not getting quality sleep. We don't make 
as good food choices, as good exercise choices, and it permeates throughout our whole lives. So the first experiment is to get in bed by 10 p.m. and give yourself a good chance and then see the results. I love it. That is so practical, so actionable. You told us specifically what to do so somebody could implement it. And I agree. Sleep is what I call a keystone habit. It helps hold all your other habits in place. When you had a bad night of sleep, you're going to have cravings for foods that are high in sugar and high in fat. You're probably not going to exercise because you're going to be like, I'm too tired. I can't exercise. And it's just going to change your entire day. So when we do everything we can to help support that good deep sleep, it really pays off. Dr. Tracy, thank you, thank you, thank you for being on the show. I appreciate you. I'm grateful for everything that you're doing to help other people. And I hope that you have a very fantastic day. Thank you so much, Dr. Yami. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to spread the word about perimenopause. I'm so grateful. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.